Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah 2. We just started a series on Jonah. It's just going to be one chapter a week, so four chapters for weeks. Um, and then, uh, then we'll see what's next. I think uh, we're going to have a couple of uh, guest preachers, including your elders, and that's going to be really great to hear from them. And then uh, we'll start a series from First John, probably, that'll take us through um, maybe even until Advent. So, uh, but we're on Jonah 2 this week, and um, I should turn there too. <clears throat> Hopefully you know how to find it in your Bible. Uh, Jonah 2. So Douglas Stewart is a um, commentator on uh, the book of Jonah and some of the other minor prophets, and he highlights in his uh, commentary on Jonah, he's, he's in highlight, uh, in the, in chapter 2, he's highlighting God's providence, God's sovereignty, God's orchestration of the events of Jonah's life, which is a pretty clear theme that you see throughout the book of Jonah, is that God's in charge of it. He's making um, what he wants to happen. And uh, Doug Stewart says, he will accomplish what he intends. And his intention, as it is becoming clear, is that Jonah should be taught a lesson about grace. Jonah should be taught a lesson about grace. So I'm going to use words uh, pretty frequently in this sermon, and I use them frequently. Uh, anyway, grace and mercy, like we should probably have a a basic definition of grace and mercy as we're, uh, I might use those words interchangeably, but basically the way that I understand them is that grace is uh, you getting better than you deserve, right? Grace is God's uh, favor, his like positive favor towards you, even though you don't deserve it. And mercy is you not getting what you do deserve, right? Um, when we deserve uh, punishment for our sins, he's merciful to us. He doesn't punish us for our sins. And so those two concepts, grace and mercy, are going to show up a lot in, um, in the passage and in the sermon this morning. Uh, that's what Jonah's being taught. He's been being taught that throughout this story. He's being taught a lesson. Usually you're scared to be taught a lesson. I'm going to teach you a lesson. But it's a, a lesson about grace. And that's what God's teaching him. So Jonah was called to preach a message. And actually it was a message mostly of doom, right? Mostly of judgment. Uh, and he was called to preach in Nineveh, and that, that's the city of his enemies. And um, for, for reasons that we looked at last week, and that we'll look at again, he turned and he ran, not just from the mission, not just from the assignment, but he ran from God. Because, um, as we discover in chapter 4, he knew all along that God would be merciful. Because that's the kind of God that he is. Uh, he's a, a gracious and merciful God, and Jonah didn't want that to happen to the Ninevites, so he ran from God. God's mercy is the great leveler. It undermines all of our self-righteousness. It undermines what we try to build our lives on, our identities, uh, what we try to make ourselves, uh, make for ourselves, get for ourselves. God's mercy undermines all that. We are implicitly judged uh, by his mercy. We are implicitly judged to be hopeless in and of ourselves, right? When we're told that we need God's mercy just like anybody else does, just like those pagans over there. Um, and Jonah couldn't stand that, so he, he literally went off the rails in his self-righteousness. It drove him crazy. Self-righteousness is insanity. He ran from God. You can't do that. But he ran from God like a pagan in order to hold on to his own religious merit, and that was the same thing that he was trying to use to distinguish himself, himself from the pagans, right? Like, I'm not like them. 
I'm righteous. And in his holding on to that, he, uh, he uh, was acting just like pagans because he ran from God. He couldn't stand knowing that he, in and of himself, has actually earned God's, um, <clears throat> that he had, had not actually earned God's favor. He couldn't stand thinking of that, that really what he had earned was death and God's uh, rejection. So he was on the run, but God chased him down, and not just in judgment. God chased him down in mercy, uh, and what did his mercy look like? It looked like judgment. <laughs> uh, he was cast into the sea. It was a bad spot, right, to be in. Uh, this can be confusing to us because God often brings things into our lives that, um, that we interpret as punishment. God brings things into our lives that we interpret as punishment when really he's teaching us a lesson about his grace, just like he's teaching Jonah. Um, He's maneuvering us into a place where we will throw ourselves on his mercy. He wants us to remember his grace and mercy. He wants us to remember his grace and mercy. And it's a mercy that implies judgment. And it's a mercy, uh, it's a grace that often works through judgment. And it's a grace that is often misinterpreted by us as being judgment because it feels like judgment. God's mercy sometimes feels that way, um, but it's grace. It's mercy. That's what it is, and we need to be told that. We need to remember that. We need to believe that. We need to know that God is gracious and merciful. We need to integrate that faith, that trust in God. We need to integrate that all the way down inside of us into the core of our uh, operating system, so to speak. Um, hopefully, you know, you live in Hillsboro where Intel is. You know what an operating system is? So we need uh, faith in God's grace to go all the way down to the core of that. That's probably a bad illustration. I don't know what I'm talking about. But <clears throat> God is teaching Jonah a lesson about grace. It's a lesson that uh, Jonah knew that he was supposed to pass on to us. Uh, and uh, it's a lesson that we need to hear and remember constantly. So let's think about that uh, this morning. Let's pray, and then we will read Jonah chapter 2. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful that you have not remained distant from us, but that you have sent the second person of the Trinity, your own Son, to reveal yourself to us, that you have sent the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to inspire the prophets and the apostles to reveal your word to us. We do have truth about you because you've been gracious to us and you've not left us in the dark, and so we pray that that truth would uh, strike down deeper into our hearts and, and renew our minds this morning. And that uh, if there are any of us here that your truth has never um, impacted in this way and renewed in this way and converted in this way, that you would do so by the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So actually I'm going to read the last verse in, verse, uh, in chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, 
yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so, um, when we get to chapter 2, you know, this, this uh, prophecy is different from the other prophecies that we have recorded, the minor prophets in the Old Testament, uh, in that it's a story. Uh, this chapter kind of is more familiar to us. It kind of seems like what the prophets would do. It's, a little, it's poetic, right? He's slowing down. Everything slows down um, in, in chapter 2. And Brian Estelle, who's another commentator, says that uh, this is a reflective dirge. I think a dirge is supposed to be only sad. <laughs> and it's not only sad, but it is sort of a reflective dirge. Things slow way down. And if this is a movie, you know, if you make a movie about Jonah, which somebody should definitely do, a uh, good one, um, <clears throat> then chapter 1 would be the wild action. I mean, it's crazy. It's tumultuous. Chapter 1, you'd be on the edge of your seat the whole time. Chapter 2 is like darkness and stillness and silence. Um, Jonah had gone insane in his self-righteousness. God's chase was traumatic. In chapter 1, Jonah ended up in the raging waters, and even his uh, deliverance was traumatic. I mean, how comforting, how reassuring would it be to be swallowed alive by some animal you don't even know what it is because you're on the inside of it um, how comforting would that be it's a traumatic experience that Jonah's had and uh, <clears throat> just a side note here this is what Jonah's best known for right by everybody knows the Jonah the whale the fish um, there's a lot crazier stuff recorded in the bible than God preparing a fish miraculously to save somebody like this there's a lot crazier stuff in the Bible than this, so we're just not going to spend much time on it. God can do whatever he wants. However he did it, uh, this is what's recorded here. Jonah had this experience, uh, whether it was a whale or something else. Um, there's crazier stuff to worry about in the Bible, so uh, don't worry about that. <clears throat> um, now, Jonah's brought to a place now where he can reflect, reflective dirge, a place where he can reflect on God's actions in his life, and where you can actually do nothing else. He's kind of stuck. There's, there's nothing else for him to do than reflect on what God has been doing in his life. And as he does so, he is able, at some point over this three days, three nights period here, uh, actually to interpret this fish-swallowing business as God's salvation. He interprets this fish-swallowing as God's salvation of him from God's own righteous judgment, actually. So uh, he has to reflect on that, though. He has to reflect on that. So uh, just a quick application. Don't avoid that kind of a reflection. Don't, don't avoid that place where everything slows down and comes to a standstill, the stillness and the silence, you know. God says, be still and know 
that I am God. Don't avoid that. Don't distract yourself into oblivion. You know, we, we live in a hectic world, um, and it's largely by choice. It's, it's largely by choice. It's under our control whether our lives are hectic and busy. Right? It really is. And you need to slow down, and you need to think. You need to meditate deliberately in an, an informed way. Not just deliberate meditation, but informed deliberate meditation on who God is and what he's doing in, in the world, in history, but especially in your life. Right? You need to do that. You need to take some time to do that and not run away from that. Um, and the only way that you can do that is to reflect on what God has said. What he's said about who he is and what he's doing in the world and in history and in your life. You have to reflect on that. And that's what Jonah had to rely on. He, he had the scriptures that were written beforehand. Right? Um, he knew them well. Very obviously, he knew them well. His prayer is full of language from the Psalms. Uh, almost every verse here is either a quotation or some kind of reference. This, the language, the imagery that he's using is from the Psalms. Um, so he knew the scriptures well. And when he came up against this trauma... He fell back on God's word. Right? He fell back on that. Um, in the hurricane that God had cast on the sea, he th threw it on the sea. Uh, Jonah was cast. He was thrown into the sea with no land in sight. He's a dead man. He knows it. He knows that he deserves it. And he knows that God was the one who brought him there to that point. Right? Um, and because he knows the scriptures, he knows that God did that out of mercy and not just out of judgment. Because he knows the scriptures, he knows that God is ultimately a God of mercy. If he didn't know the scriptures, if he was just going to go on uh, superstition, kind of religious instincts that everybody has, um, he would only be able to interpret his circumstances as God's anger toward him. How else are you going to interpret that? You're a dead man. This crazy stuff is happening to you. You know God made it happen to you, it's got to be judgment. It's got to be, unless you know the scriptures, that's your uh, only conclusion that, that you would come to. Um, <clears throat> but he prays to the God who has traumatized him. He knows God's willing to hear this prayer, and God delivers him, right? So the first part of his prayer here is a reference. It's uh, actually remembering the prayer that he had just made when he was in the water, <laughs> right, uh, while he was sinking down, um, before the fish had swallowed him. It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the one true God, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, the underworld, right, death, I cried, and you heard my voice. So his prayer first is remembering God's mercy to him already. Um, in answering his previous prayer by sending a fish to swallow him. A fish, a whale, the, the word there is indeterminate, some kind of large creature that lives in the water. Um, his prayer continues on through the rest of chapter 2 to be uh, full of aquatic language. It's language of tumultuous waters, language of drowning, of death in the deep, which of course is entirely appropriate given his literal, physical circumstances. For him to use language like that makes a lot of sense, but it's more than just describing his literal, physical circumstances. It's more than that. It's describing his spiritual state. 
It's describing his relationship with God, with Yahweh. Because that's what this is all about. It's, it's the prophet. It's not just some crazy oceanic sequence that looks cool in a movie. It really is the prophet being called to confess his sins, to repent, to turn away from them and turn to Yahweh, the one true God, to serve him, to do what he says, to go on the mission that he was called to go on. That's what this book is about. And he says in verse 3, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So um, he knows God brought this about. He, uh, in a sense, was getting what he deserved, wasn't he? For disobeying God, for running away from God in his self-righteousness, saying, I don't need you, I don't want your mercy, I don't want to have anything to do with you because you're merciful, um, because that undermines my self-righteousness and my identity. So he was getting what he deserved with this watery death. Um, But in a more ultimate sense, it was God's mercy to him, and not only to him, but to us. Jonah knows that this doom has fallen on him because of God, because God is chasing him down in mercy. As we talked about last week, mercy implies judgment. If God comes to you saying, I forgive you, then it means you have something to be forgiven. Right? Um, you get indignant saying, I don't need that. I don't need to be forgiven. I don't want that. Um, his mercy implies judgment. And the way God pursues you to convince you that he is gracious to convince you that he is merciful, that he really does forgive you and love you, is, is easily misinterpreted by us as being only judgment. Um, but somehow Jonah knew his watery ordeal was judgment, but not only judgment. Right? And here's what I think is the strangest part of Jonah's psalm in verse 4. It's kind of the turnaround here, but <clears throat> he said, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. I'm driven away. God, the all-powerful God who has every right to punish him, is driving him out of his sight. Yet, what, I'm going to wrestle my way back into your temple? Yet I shall again see your temple. He has a pretty high view of God's holiness, and he's starting to come to grips with his own sinfulness. He knows that there's no escaping God, that God will accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish, And that he absolutely deserves God's wrath, his rejection. And he says, you've driven me away in rejection. But he says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. What right does he have to say that? What right does he have to say that? You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Your flood surrounded me. Your waves passed over me. I'm driven from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. I know you've got every reason to be angry with me. Your anger is absolutely overwhelming. It's like the raging seas. It's much more than I could bear up under. It's like I'm drowning. Nevertheless, I will be with you in your presence among your people. I'm going to see that temple again. How can he say that? He's the bad guy. He has no right to say that. He can say it because he knows that in spite of what he knows he deserves, he knows who God has revealed himself to be. 
God has already revealed himself through the scriptures by Jonah's time. And so Jonah can say this because he knows who God has revealed himself to be. He says it again later in chapter 4. We looked at it last week. It's, we probably look at it every week. It's kind of the, the key uh, to understanding Jonah's motives throughout the book. But it's a quote from Exodus 34. God had revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34 and said that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love. Steadfast love is this Hebrew word, hesed, which it means a whole lot. Uh, Steadfast love is kind of barely a good enough translation for it. But God keeps that kind of love for thousands or to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You see the same thing in that passage. It's this apparent contradiction between the righteous anger of God. He will by no means clear the guilty. You've you've cast me into the depths of the sea. You've rejected me from your presence. And um, the apparent contradiction with his undying, unfailing mercy, grace, steadfast love, and faithfulness. Um, Jonah knew about this. He quotes it later. He's been thinking about it, he says. He might not have understood how it all worked together, but he was banking on it. He was banking on God's mercy in this prayer, and he does so with reference in particular to the holy temple, right? He talks about the temple. And talk about a confusing place. The temple. What's the first thing that you see as you're approaching it, maybe from a distance? When When you see God's temple... In the Old Testament, we have this picture of it. We have all these things that were going on at the temple. What's the first thing you you see from a distance when you're looking at God's temple? You see majesty. You see awe. This place is tremendous and beautiful. And then as you draw closer, you'd probably start to be afraid. What's that smell? Is that blood? Those entrails, what's that on fire over there? Ah, oh, the screaming of the bulls and goats that are being slaughtered. What? Oh. That's terrifying, and that's judgment. And that's what we deserve. But uh, in the temple, that's what we deserve being taken out on a substitute. Not on us. And then you think of the whole point of the whole thing, the whole point of the temple, right? That in the heart of this awful place is the presence of God himself. That through that thick curtain where only one man can go once a year, symbolically representative of everybody else, where the perfect law of God, the judgments of God are kept inside this box, right? The Ark of the Covenant as a constant reminder of God's faithfulness that he will absolutely keep his word. Right there at the heart of it all is the mercy seat. It's the throne of judgment, and on top of it is a mercy seat. It's the place where God meets us, not to destroy us. Not in judgment, but in mercy for fellowship. That's the place where God meets us. You might interpret the temple as a place of only judgment. 
but you'd be wrong to do so. The whole point of it is mercy. The whole point of it is reconciliation and fellowship and communion with God. It's a place ultimately of God's gracious love, but you have to be shown that. You have to know that from the scriptures. You have to remember that or else overwhelmingly you will just think of God's judgment as you come to the temple. Um, And that's what Jonah was clinging to here. He was, in a sense, experiencing God's judgment, but not only judgment. He knew ultimately that God was doing all this in his life to bring him back to himself in mercy, and he trusted that if he fell back on that, if he banked on that, then he would again see God's holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. He's going all the way down to death. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Some commentators think actually he might have died and that God raised him from the dead. God's done that before a few times in the scriptures. Um, But at least it's a picture of death. At the very least, it's a picture of his death Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So overwhelmed by what could easily be interpreted as only God's judgment, he remembered that God is a God of grace and mercy and steadfast love. He remembered grace, and he was justified in doing so because that is who God has revealed himself to be. He was absolutely justified in remembering that God is a God of grace and mercy. And if that was true for Jonah, how much more true is it for us? Hebrews chapter 1 says that long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ has revealed God to us in a way never before done. Even though God revealed himself to Moses, clearly, it's written down in the scriptures clearly who God is, what kind of a God he is. Jesus Christ has revealed God to us in a way never before done because he is God. Because he's God the Son. God come in the flesh to dwell among us so that we could know him. And Jesus told us that uh, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. His coming was still easy for us to misinterpret as God's judgment, really easy for us to misinterpret as God's judgment, because he came forgiving sins, and we hate that. We'd rather not believe we need sins forgiven, thank you. (laughs) Um, Mercy implies judgment. His mercy, his coming in the flesh, his mercy implies judgment but at the end of the day, it's mercy. Ultimately, it's mercy. And what a terrible mercy that we see in Jesus Christ. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he was pierced, he was crushed, he was rejected, he was judged. In our place, as our substitute, so that we could be forgiven. Jonah's cry was nothing compared to to Jesus' cry of dereliction, of abandonment. Jonah said, "You've, you've driven me away. 
But Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured not just a near-death experience like Jonah probably had. He endured the pit of death itself. He went down to the gate whose bars closed on him. And he did that for you so that you wouldn't have to go there. He went down and the gates couldn't hold him. He came back for you. And now because of him, the throne of judgment is a throne of grace. There's a mercy seat, right? It's a throne of grace that we are able boldly to approach. And now you are absolutely justified beyond a shadow of a doubt. You are absolutely justified in telling yourself that the difficult circumstances in your life are not God's judgment of you. It's not God punishing you. It's not God driving you away. It's not God abandoning you. You are absolutely justified in telling yourself that even the, the most difficult circumstances of your life are not judgment. They're mercy. Because God tells you that you can know that. He shows you. He's teaching you a lesson about grace in Jonah. And the ultimate proof about his, his grace is in the one who's greater than Jonah. In Jesus Christ. God didn't spare his son for you. He gave him up for you. As it says in Romans 8, which Berta read this morning. He didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for you because he is a God, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not even the righteous judgments of God. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Not even his righteous judgments. Because of Jesus. He gave his son to suffer those judgments for you as your substitute so you can be forgiven, so you can know his love. So that you can experience his love so that you can grasp his love and cling to it and know that it's never going to leave you no matter what your circumstances tell you. No matter how difficult the sufferings may be, you can interpret everything as God's mercy towards you because he works all things together for the good for those who are called according to his purposes. He's the only God who does anything like that. He's the only God that gives you this kind of assurance that he loves you, that he's in complete control of your life, and you should not misinterpret that as judgment or abandonment. He's the only God that does anything like that. It, Jonah continues his prayer. He says in verses 8 and 9, Those who pay regard to vain idols, empty nothingness, these other false gods that are not gods, those who pay regard to them forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, as a response to your steadfast love, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's no other God that salvation belongs to. No other God is going to assure you of his grace and, and mercy and steadfast love like this. If you want this kind of love, this kind of salvation, this kind of mercy, that is absolutely always true for you, no matter how else you might interpret your circumstances, you will only find it in Yahweh, in the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because salvation belongs to him. And now, your grasp on his grace, I think you probably are aware of the fact that it's weak, right? It's weak. It's not maybe what you would hope that it is. Your grasp on his grace is never going to be perfect in this life. And the tragic beauty of the book of Jonah is that he gets it, but he doesn't get it, Right? He's got a grasp. I mean, he knows God's grace, and he, he's responding to it. But man, he totally messes it up. <laughs> he still messes it up. 
He doesn't live out of a place where grace is just driving him all the time. Right? And that's the tragic beauty of the book. Because that's pretty realistic. I mean, that, that reflects what we all experience. He throws himself on God's mercy. He knows he doesn't deserve salvation. God saves him. He has gratitude. And then he goes to Nineveh and shows clearly that grace has not changed him all the way down yet. It has not changed him thoroughly yet. And so you can get it right here, right now. Plenty of times where you get it, where you love God's grace and you're responding to it. And then you go home and you blow it and you yell at your kids and you cheat on your taxes and you lie about a business deal and you run away from God's mission of witness to his grace. You don't get it. You get it, but you don't get it. You can even be angry with God. And still, you get it, but you don't get it. And Jonah shows us that that's just what we're like. And uh, by God's grace, you know that that whole thing, where you get it and you don't get it, that's, that's not the end of the world for you. Right? That's not your apostasy. That's not your walking away from the faith and from relationship with God. That's, that's you being, as we've maybe said for hundreds of years, simultaneously justified and a sinner. You're both those things. That's the Christian story, period, in this life. We're like Jonah. We always need grace. There is no getting away from that. You always need it. And that's why you've got to tell your heart, every day, and more than once, that salvation belongs to the Lord, that he is merciful, that he has steadfast love for you. That's why you need to come to church, because we need each other to say, salvation belongs to the Lord. He's a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love for you. The biggest thing the elders here want you to know, the thing that drives our prayers for you and drives all of our ministry among you is that God's grace is more than sufficient for you. God's grace is more than sufficient for you at all times in Christ Jesus. We try to demonstrate repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That's the Christian life. We try to demonstrate that because that's what needs to characterize every single one of you. Repentance and faith. Um, and it's based on a grasp of God's grace, and it's a tenuous grasp, and it slips from our fingers all the time. That's why we need each other, right? And it's got to be an active thing, a deliberate thing, this remembering grace, right? Martin Luther said, um, most necessary is it that we know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually, right? You've got to know it and pound on it for yourself and for others, this gospel of God's grace, You've got to rehearse it. You've got to get it down into your instincts a little bit further, into your operating system. Right? It's just like Captain America 2. <laughs> it's kind of not really like that. But uh, <clears throat> where you've got to fight. Captain America, he's got to fight to replace the helicarrier's evil code with the good code. He's got to slip this thing in so the operating system changes and whatever. You've got to fight all the time to do that in yourself. You've got to fight against your own evil instincts to remind yourself of God's grace, not just his judgment, his grace. You've got to memorize the scriptures like Jonah did, and not just memorize them, you've got to understand them. You've got to understand them in a grace-oriented way. 
Because it's pretty easy to misinterpret the scriptures as being only about judgment, hellfire and brimstone, right? At the end of the day, it's about mercy. And so you need to memorize the scriptures and understand them that way. That's not easy. You've got to learn that. You've got to study. You've got to listen to others who can do that too. You need to be in discipleship relationships. Every single one of us needs to be in one or more discipleship relationships where you learn from one another, where you teach one another how to find encouragement in the scriptures, how to fix your eyes on the mercy that's found in Jesus Christ, to get your thinking and your instincts shaped by God's mercy and his grace. You should be doing this in your families. Family worship is not just some duty that you have to reluctantly perform. You You need to rehearse the gospel with each other. You need that. Especially the kids need that. Every one of us needs that. You need that or else you'll look at life wrong, you'll misinterpret who God is and what he's doing in your life. You will misinterpret. You need to think together about the fact that God loves you and to get that more deeply embedded in all of your hearts. And let me just say, moms, I know sometimes uh, you feel like people are being pretty hard on you, make a lot of demands on you, on top of things like having to wrestle with a couple of kids all day long. Um, you are in as many discipleship relationships as you have children in your home, right? That's your ministry. That's real ministry. Don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. That's, that's real ministry, but for it to be ministry, you need to be communicating the gospel, the good news about God. You need to be celebrating the gospel, that Jesus is proof that God loves us, that he does not condemn us, that we can truly live from a place of knowing his love and his mercy. The Christian life is not just about being a good person and doing all the right things. So uh, your parenting shouldn't be about that. Not, not primarily. Not only. Don't confuse the essence of your parenting with behavior training. It's not only that. It's already too late for your kids. Did you know? It's already too late. They're sinners just like you are. I know we want the best for them. We want better for them than we got for ourselves, but they are just sinners like us. So your, your job isn't to create a safe, well-controlled environment, minimizing any opportunity for them to actually be a sinner. That's not your job. Your main job is to convince them that God loves them anyway. God loves them anyway, just like he loves you anyway. And he's had mercy on them through the person and work of Jesus Christ Your job is to teach them to cling to him because he's trustworthy, because he has steadfast love and there's nowhere else you can go for that kind of love. And your own deep, painful need of God's mercy, you need to show that to them. You need to say, I'm sorry, I messed that up. You need to show your own need for God's mercy, showing your own trust in his character and his provision of mercy. That that goes for all of us, not just parents. (laughs) We need to testify to God's grace by confessing our sins and being open about the fact that we don't think this is about us. We don't think this is about us living a perfect life. Let me try to fool you on that. It's about his mercy. And uh, we do trust that he is a God, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. It might be a weak trust that you have, but it is not a weak mercy that he has. And that's good news. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, we do wrestle with this dynamic of being 
simultaneously justified in your sight and truly changed from the inside out, and yet also a, uh, a sinner still we remain. And uh, this is discouraging to us when we think about it. We think that we should be better than we are. We pray that you would get our eyes off of ourselves, that you would train us away from self-righteousness, from building an identity before you on who we are and what we're able to do. We pray that you would get our eyes fixed on Christ, on the mercy and grace and love that is freely given to us through him and clearly demonstrated and proven to us so that we are justified at all times and in every way in feeling the pleasure of your love toward us, no matter what the circumstances of our lives, no matter what we've brought down on our own heads uh, by our own sin, by our own rebellion against you. We know that you love us, and we want to cling to that. We want to uh, find our delight in you being this kind of a God. We want to turn away from all other gods because they're false gods. They're vain, empty nothing, and they offer no love, only slavery. And so we turn to you now, and we pray for your Spirit's help for us to turn constantly to you in your word, to you in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.